Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is a CBC Podcast. Climate change affects all of us, but it has a disproportionate effect on racialized communities. Today, an encore episode focusing on young Black Canadians who are pushing boundaries in the name of climate justice. And we hear from the man who inspired them, the so-called father of the cause, who has led the way in connecting racial inequality to environmental injustice for decades. At 75, he's rallying younger generations and, in his words, passing the baton. Welcome to What on Earth? I'm Laura Lynch. I'm very close to the Haitian community in Montreal. Saint-Michel, this neighborhood is really have a, a large group of migrants, a lot of Black people. There are very clear cases of environmental racism. The heat of the space, the air quality is um, one of the worst in Montreal. Uh, for example, the lack of green space there. That sounds crazy, but there is almost no parks in this area or, you know, proper green spaces. Knowing that this area is where the temperature is higher, for example, during summer, like when you are there, you, you feel it, you see the difference. Uh, when you go outside of this neighborhood and you go to the, how can I say that? <laughs> you go to the white neighborhoods, then it's not, it's completely different. Climate change impacts myself and my own community in Toronto and impacts my family back home in Barbados. I don't know if, if I have children, if they'll be able to see it. Or if they have children, they'll be able to go back home and where this is where we're from. Like, and people don't realize, like, they're just destroying, like, all these, like, little nations for nothing, for just economic greed, which is really hard. Alison Doyle Braithwaite and Leila Kantav are interns with the Canadian Coalition for Environmental and Climate Justice. The group believes you can't battle climate change without thwarting environmental racism. Nalo Charles is the co-founder of the coalition. Nalo, hello. Hello, how are you? I'm fine, thanks. Environmental racism, it isn't a new term, but for people who might not be familiar with it, can you give us a brief description, explain what it is for people who might not know? Yes, environmental racism is a term that was uh, first used uh, by the end of the 70s in the uh, United States. And uh, it was actually to describe the fact that some communities, uh, specifically Black, Indigenous, immigrant and low-income communities tend to be unfairly uh, exposed to pollution and to the risk of climate change. So when we talk about environmental racism, we're actually talking about the power differences between certain groups and the difference in environmental protection that um, some communities have versus more privileged communities. There was a previous bill that was introduced by former Liberal MP Lenore Zahn in the last parliament that, that addressed this issue, and it received widespread support. But it died on the order paper when the election was called. And then this week, 
suddenly the Green Party reintroduced a, a similar version of it, and that had nothing to do with your coalition at all. But I'm wondering if you think that a bill like this could actually become law in this parliament. Is the support there? So, yes, I think a bill can definitely be adopted based on what we've seen in in the last couple of months. We've had the support of most major uh, political parties in Canada. But what I think is very important is to remember what the history of this movement and this bill is. It really started with... Uh, you know, Lenore Zan and Dr. Ingrid Waldron pushing up this bill. So with the last federal election, uh, the process was stopped, but it wasn't the first time. It was the second time that that bill died. So in terms of our coalition, our priority right now is trying to work with the government, especially because we're lucky enough to have a government that for the first time included environmental justice in the mandate letter. So we're trying to work with the government to see if we can actually use a, a different avenue Uh, working closely with them to embed environmental justice in their government practice and and their own bill. So while we will always be supportive of environmental justice work and environmental justice bills, we think that uh, we need to give an opportunity to the government to see if they actually will uh, follow through with their commitments. Bill C-230 called on the government to examine the links between race, socioeconomic status, and environmental risk. And and Ingrid Waldron, who you mentioned already, who co-founded the bill, has already started mapping environmental racism across Canada. I'm wondering what the challenges are of collecting that kind of data right now. So Dr. Ingrid Waldron worked on a similar project for Nova Scotia and for specific communities. We're trying to look at the entire country and see if we can collect data and uh, even create a map that will help us track the environmental racism events and patterns all around the country. But when you're trying to collect this type of data, it's very difficult. So something I always tell people is that we actually need hyperlocal data. And hyperlocal data is not data that the government usually collects. So we're actually really asking for some systemic changes here, and we're hoping that uh, this will happen very soon. And the systemic changes are more than legislation, I would think. Exactly. So the legislation is one of the ways to bring the conversation in, in the country and also to give an opportunity to the leaders to show to uh, the entire community in Canada that this issues matter so that we can tell the stories so that we can find more allies to increase the environmental protection of some of the communities that have been really left out of uh, most of the environmental progress that we had uh, over several decades. Now, I just I want to change gears here. I wanted to play you um, some tape from one of the interns that the coalition sent to the COP26 uh, climate change talks in Glasgow uh, last year. This is Tiana Connolly. We didn't meet any other Black Canadian youths. And so it's kind of like they've had the BIPOC Canadian delegation for how long? And so all of this time, where have the Black youths been? It's just not right to use the term if you're not going to represent it. We're supposed to be a part of those conversations as well. And when you when we're not there, then, you know, we're left out of the decision making and we're left out of the benefits. I'm wondering to what extent Black people of any age have been included in these Canadian delegations in the past. Well, um, so what we hear from people who have been going to COP for the last 25 years or the last 10 years, we're hearing that this was probably the first time that there was actually a Canadian delegation 
that intentionally sent some black youth to COP. And we didn't really do it to make history. We just did it because that's that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to create more diversity in the environmental sector because, well, environmental issues affect all of the communities. So we need to have everyone to be part of the solution. We definitely had the help of a lot of the, the established organizations in the environmental sector. But definitely, if we were not there, if the initiative wasn't there, if the coalition wasn't there, if Dr. Ingrid Walton wasn't there, I don't know if uh, Tiana, Allison, and Leila, these three interns, uh, would have been in this COP conference. What do you think it represents, the fact that they were there? What, beyond the symbolism, what does it achieve? It's amazing to see how they were able to learn so much in just about two weeks and how they were able to go from people who were kind of shy to speak in public to really becoming outspoken environmental justice advocates. Also, it's amazing to see how they were able to look at this space and notice the silent uh, discrimination that's happening and, and the silent barriers that we don't really see. And I think uh, for them, it's something that's unacceptable because they grew up with a notion that uh, we're in a post-racial era because of the generation they live in. So that's something that's very surprising to them. And so, yes, there's a generational shift where we see young people being a lot more active and I would say more vocal when they see discrimination like that because for them, that's not normal. So they don't normalize it. And I think that's amazing. What what kinds of invisible walls did you see them knocking down? So... Uh, Invisible walls, like being in meetings with elected officials, with uh, people who are actually powerful people, and where normally in the room, um, years ago, it was only white people. And when there was some kind of diversity, maybe you had some indigenous groups who could find a way to get there. So having a black voice, three black voices in these meetings, it was one of the first times that um, this happened. And I think it's extremely important because even just sitting there uh, saying nothing, being uh, visible in this space, it, it makes people have to think about you. Uh, we spent time here talking a lot about the work that you do and your hopes for the future, but I'm wondering about you and what drives you to want to do this kind of work. For me, I often say I don't feel like I really chose to be in this work. It's just part of my identity. It's just part of my personal story. So I grew up in, in, a, in a country where uh, environmental racism and colonization has been a reality for a very long time. And uh, although I wasn't aware of that at the beginning, I became aware of that. And that led me to want to work in the environment and then trying to work in the environment, realizing that there were actually some barriers and I was just trying to do something good. And I couldn't understand why there would be barriers for me to do something good for society. Why is it a luxury to be able to work in the environmental sector when it's something that's so needed? Uh, so for me, I think it's about uh, giving opportunities to uh, some young people and opportunities that I, I, I didn't have and finding a way to uh, break the barriers that uh, I, I face myself. I love Charles. Thank you for your time. Thank you so much. Since we spoke to Nalo, the new bill to tackle environmental racism, Bill C-226, has advanced in the House of Commons to the committee stage, where MPs will study the proposed legislation. And you heard him talk about breaking down barriers. 
While young people like Leila Kantov and Tiana Connolly say it's already making a difference. I think it changed everything for me. This internship, first of all, is was tackling an issue, which was, you know, a lack of diversity in the environmental sector. But on top of that, it actually did what it was supposed to do. It opened doors and I get to be in meetings. I get to work with different organizations and meet different people. And this definitely helped me give me clarity on what I want to do after. You know, the networking, networking is really important, right? Because we're working with so many different organizations. You meet so many different people who are interested in what you're doing. And some of them are interested in having racialized communities perspective. That really helped me, I think, especially uh, with my career and the next step for me. Being able to mobilize as young people and make real changes, that is something that I find very inspiring. Sometimes you just need someone to help you or put you in a place to to be successful. And I think that's what I got from this internship. And it empowered me a lot, being able to see other young people being empowered, as well as being around people who believed in me and, and gave me access to resources and access to typically exclusionary spaces. That's what I would like to do. And I think that's what a lot of youth-led organizations are doing. They're giving other youths access so they can be empowered and mobilized. And I think that's where a lot of the change is going to come from. Since their internship with his organization, Leila and Tiana founded their own organization called Black EcoBloom. It's focused on supporting Black women, Black transgender women, and Black non-binary people to be leaders in the environmental sector. The term environmental racism was first coined in 1982, and a man named Robert Bullard had a lot to do with it. He's widely known as the father of environmental justice. He lives in Texas, where he's been fighting the fight for four decades. His first book on the subject, Dumping in Dixie, Race, Class, and Environmental Quality, was published in 1990. Now he's a distinguished professor of urban planning and environmental policy at Texas Southern University. And he's been serving on the White House Environmental Justice Advisory Council. Robert Bullard, hello. Hello. You started out in this field doing research for a lawsuit that your wife, Linda McKeever Bullard, brought against a waste management company. What was it that you started looking at back then? Well, that was way back in 1979 when I was drafted into collecting um, data and doing a study to look at the location of municipal uh, landfills and incinerators and waste dumps in Houston uh, from the 1930s up to 1978. I had 10 students in my research methods class uh, at Texas Southern University in Houston, a historically black college university. And uh, I designed a study and I told my students, uh, students, we have a research project. We had to locate these um, landfills and incinerators and garbage dumps by way of records and doing windshield surveys, going out and physically surveying and eyeballing where mountains are in Houston. And Houston is flat. It's only like 54 feet above sea level. So anytime you see a mountain in Houston, it's a garbage dump. And so we were able to put pins in a map and look at the census tracts 
locations and color coordinate that with race and ethnicity. And what we found was astonishing. We found that five out of five of the city-owned landfills, six out of eight of the city-owned incinerators, and three out of four of the privately-owned landfills in Houston over that period of time from the 30s and up to 1978 were located in predominantly Black neighborhoods in Houston. And when I say predominantly Black, that's like me saying my family is predominantly Black. These are all Black neighborhoods that were created by redlining and Jim Crow segregation. We went to trial uh, in 1985. We lost the case in court because the judge did not want to see a white judge, must have been 150 years old, uh, didn't want to see that this was racism. And so we lost the case, but the study itself set the foundation for environmental justice research. And uh, my wife, who uh, at the time set the legal theory and analysis for how this was a form of discrimination and should be protected by civil rights law. That's the long story in a short version, uh, but um, that was 42 years ago. You said you were astonished when you started looking at, at what was being done. Why were you astonished? And also, if I can just ask you a favor for our listeners, if you could explain what redlining is. Well, I grew up in the South, Jim Crow South. I grew up in a, in Alabama, in South Alabama, and went to all black uh, elementary, middle, and high school. In my neighborhood, it was all black. The streets were not paved. We didn't have sidewalks. We didn't have street lights. And sewer lines uh, stopped at our neighborhood where they were in all these uh, infrastructure were in, in the white community. So I grew up with that. But at the same time, when I did the study in Houston and saw those pins in a map and saw without exception the pervasiveness of racial redlining, which is a form of, of discrimination that will deny certain types of amenities, certain types of things like paved streets, like uh, street lights, like sewer lines, like parks and green space. Those are the amenities. But then you look at the disamenities, those things that other people don't want and say, put it somewhere else. To put it somewhere else, that was the garbage dumps, the incinerators the landfills. And when you look at those pens, 82% of all the pens were in black neighborhoods. Now, when you see that on a map, you have to realize that this was not something that was accidental or coincidental. It was systematic structural racism. And so, you know, we've gone through the 60s of the civil rights movement, but this was something that had, without any break in the continuity of just dumping on black people, that's the the aha moment for me is like, wow, this is happening in the fourth largest city in a city that, that has a half million black people. And it was not like you're there, you know, the largest black community in the South in terms of the population wise. And this city was actually doing it in 1979. Wow. I mean, you, you so you have in your hands this stark portrait of what you were talking about and yet you have this man that you described as a 150-year-old white judge. <laughs> and I'm wondering beyond him, how difficult was it to get people to hear, believe, understand what you were showing them? Let me just break it down. The maps, the statistics, and the, the data, they were all pointing to one conclusion, that this was racism being practiced and it was intentional. This was not accidental. And we could not get any support from 
the environmental groups. Now, this is, you know, you have to realize that 1979, that was almost a decade after the first Earth Day. When I showed the environmental groups these data and those maps, the response that I got was, whoa, isn't that where the, the landfills and, and, and the dumps are supposed to be? But it didn't stop with the environmental groups, the white groups. It also penetrated the oldest civil rights organization in the United States. I'm not going to call any names, but you know the initials, the NAACP. We yeah. showed them that data, and their response was, well, we don't work on environmental issues. We work on housing discrimination, discrimination in education, employment, and voting. So you have two tracks, civil rights and environmentalism. And those two tracks were separate, and they did not converge. It took almost two decades for civil rights and environmentalism to converge with the understanding that these are environmental issues, they are justice issues, and they are civil rights issues. We're still dealing with that uh, lack of understanding how these environmental issues, also issues of justice, fairness, and equity, even in 2022. So you, in fact, were the one that was pushing that rock up a hill for two decades. Why did you keep pushing? Why did What did it take to keep pursuing it? Well, you know, I, I'm a sociologist by training, and I tell people I do not do dead white man sociology. <laughs> I do what's called scientifically kick-ass sociology in the mold of one of my heroes, sociology heroes, W.E.B. Du Bois. Du Bois was a scholar. He was a prolific author, and he was an activist. He helped founded the NAACP. Uh, he wrote all kinds of, of books, and he did some of the first empirical studies, sociology studies dealing with race. And so I, I wanted to mold my career after Du Bois. So when I start discovering, you know, this initial findings in Houston, I wanted to know, is this just a Houston phenomenon? Because Houston is different. It was not just Houston. It was not just the South. It was the entire United States. And later, when we expanded our analysis and our model to look at the world, <laughs> we found that it was the same thing happening all over the world. That kind of work is only just starting here in Canada. And I'm wondering what you make of the fact that it's only just begun here. Well, you know, when you look at environmental justice and you look at the tools that are available for research, and especially tools that are user-friendly with communities that are on the front line and the fence line, it takes time and it takes pressure. Uh, this is not something that the federal government decided it wanted to do out of its own benevolence or kind-heartedness or thoughtfulness. This is something that pressure was brought to bear within those agencies to do it. And we're still refining. And so I think Canada uh, has to look around and see that most likely the tools that the U.S. have developed and could easily be adapted to what's happening, you know, north of us and see some of the same, most likely the same kinds of uh, spatial disparities, uh, income, as well as race and ethnicity and geography occurring. So, so I, you know, I don't think this is unique to the U.S., but I, I do think that having an organized electorate and an organized uh, movement really make a difference. It really makes a difference uh, as to the level of, of mobilization. And what we're talking about is intergenerational mobilization. 
uh, not just uh, older people, boomers, but but looking at Zoomers, millennials and younger uh, and Gen Xers uh, outnumber boomers in the U.S. And so it's like when that population uh, really uh, starts to energize and, and, and mobilize and organize and and vote, we get change. I just you, you've given me this entree because um, everything you're talking about, about uh, younger generations and people doing more and more, because a lot of what's happening is, is built on your shoulders. And, and you, quite frankly, are a bit of a rock star to, to younger <laughs> generations. And I just want to play some tape for you from a young Canadian woman named Alison Doyle Braithwaite. Mm-hmm. She was at COP26 in Glasgow, as were you attending, mm-hmm. attending the summits there. And she met you. I just want you to listen to what she told us. I actually saw him at this like little kiosk. Um, my supervisor, he pointed him out and it was really fun. So we walked up and he introduced us and it was just crazy to me because I have heard so much about him and I was just so excited. He's just such a sweet man too. I think it was just powerful just to see him in person and I was just in shock. It was just an amazing experience, like one of my highlights for sure at COP. So how does that feel to hear about the kind of impact you, you are having on young people like Allison? Well, you know, I remember that. I remember that moment and it was great to see those young people from Canada and to talk with them. And that's what keeps me going. This is calling for a race, but it's not a sprint. Uh, I tell people it's more like a marathon relay. We know there's no such race. You run your 26.2 miles and then you pass the baton to the next generation to run that 26.2. But at the same time, you don't stop running and stand on the sideline and watch. You keep working. You keep helping and supporting. And that's what I see those young people that that I talked with in Canada that was in, in Glasgow. That's that passing baton and to assist and support Uh, So that that last leg of that race, that we finish strong, we don't drop the baton, uh, that we keep our eyes on that finish line, on that prize. And I think, and I'm optimistic, I'm hopeful that we will get there. I have to ask you this last question. You've been so generous with your time, and I appreciate it. You mentioned W.E.B. Du Bois, the American sociologist, the person you wanted to model your career on. What do you think he would think of you in in 2022? <laughs> wow. I would hope that he would uh, uh, be looking down and say, oh, good student. <laughs> you know, I, I graduated from Atlanta University uh, Department of Sociology, my master's degree, and he founded that department. He, he did most of his research at Atlanta University. So I would hope that he would say, good student, uh, keep, keep going. <laughs> Maybe he'd give you an A. Yes, or if not an A, <laughs> an A minus, <laughs> or a B plus. <laughs> it's been wonderful talking to you. Thank you so much. My pleasure. My name is Rudy Kelly, and I am an herb original. I am chief. My dad was a great chief of the Simshian Nation, beloved by his people. But at home, with his family, he brought anger and pain. He told me that to succeed... I would have to leave everything behind. Now I'm on a journey to find out who and what my dad really was. The Herb Original is an all-new CBC podcast. Available now.
You're listening to an encore episode of What on Earth on CBC Radio 1 and Sirius XM. I'm Laura Lynch. So much of what we talk about here, extreme heat, floods, fire, can trigger intense emotions, anxiety, fear, anger, maybe even dread. Britt Ray knows all about it. She's a human and planetary health postdoctoral fellow at Stanford's Center for Innovation in Global Health. And she's the author of Generation Dread, a new book that argues that the first thing we need to do with those feelings is feel them. Here's our conversation from May of this year. You start off this book writing about whether to have a child. Take us back to 2017. What kind of emotions were you dealing with back then? Well, as a science communicator who's very much reading constantly climate reports and and papers and also attuned to the political struggle around action and the ineffective progress that's been made there to really safeguard humanity's future with respect to the climate crisis, I was then introduced to a lot of anxiety and grief. And I've always cared about the climate crisis and brought some of that awareness into my my life, my behaviors. But until this moment, it hadn't been profound emotional turbulence. So I became super curious about the psychological impact it was having on me. I didn't know if I was alone. Not that many people were talking about this at the time. It's been very surreal, actually, since that year to learn not only that I was far from alone, but there was this underground movement of many young people feeling the same, which is since come to be above the surface. You detail this one particular day that is it's so compelling to read. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, it really all came to a head. Um, there was this one 24-hour period when I was in Copenhagen. It's where I had been living for many years. And my partner is Danish, and many of my best friends are still there. And I stayed up really late one night with my friends. We were talking until the wee hours about how we're relating to the climate crisis now, given how severe it's become and the destruction we are told to expect from scientific evidence if we don't dramatically and immediately curb our emissions. And we it got profoundly emotional and questions of whether we can have kids, whether they could have kids if we did have kids. And then the next morning, my friend and I went for breakfast and instead of it being a delightful time as you know breakfast dates often are it was laden with grief and we were in tears about everything that's going on with the climate crisis feeling the kind of pain that you feel when someone you love has died um it was, it was pretty overwhelming and then i had to board a train and go to the island that my husband is from and my father-in-law was waiting for me there And after dinner, we went for drinks, and it was there that he politely but, you know, very pointedly was asking me questions about whether or not we're going to have kids, because it felt like time was ticking on, I think, for him. I was getting to the age by which he had already had five children, (laughs) and he was not able to understand why we were waiting, or perhaps even deciding to not have them. And so I had to explain that the ecological outlook has made that really difficult, and he told me that. You know, he knows that it's going to get bad, but he wants grandchildren all the same. And then I boarded the train back to the city of Copenhagen and was just really 
feeling overwhelmed with the the sadness and the anger and was that person you never want to be crying out loud on public transport. So, you know, it was certainly an, an acute confrontation with difficult emotions that many people are now calling eco-anxiety. And that's why I asked you about it, because I think a lot of people are feeling those those same kinds of feelings. Um, and I want to get into eco-anxiety more, but I just want to ask you this. As someone who lives and breathes the science side of climate change, how did you square what you knew rationally with the way you were feeling? I mean, I, I think we heard some of it there. You reacted to it with tears and, and anger and grief. But how do you square mm-hmm. it with the science? Yeah, it's a it's a challenge and it takes a lot of time to internally process these emotions because they're pretty existential in their nature. And they can really make a person feel like the world isn't safe anymore if they were ever lucky enough to feel that the world is a safe place. Um, many people, of course, are not so privileged to be able to take that for granted. And so I needed to come to cope with these emotions by doing the research for the book and finding out about how eco-anxiety is showing up in other people's lives and, and looking for diverse ways of grappling with the emotions. And I, I learned to value them and really see that eco-anxiety is a sign that we care and that we are compassionate and awake to what's happening, that we can sense the vulnerability of other species, many humans and the earth itself. And so it's very natural and normal to feel this. Uh, But without that kind of validation from the get-go, it can really make a person feel crazy, especially if you're sitting there isolated and alienated in the feelings and don't have a place to share them with a supportive group of others who will mirror them and say, you know, that's totally valid or that's legitimate or I feel that way too. We don't really have norms yet in culture at large for grappling together with the emotions that the climate and wider eco-crisis is causing And we need to in order to help people supportively move through them and not get stuck in any one dire place. We know that eco-anxiety can be really constructive and that it's actually an adaptive response because it's this alarm signal pointing out that something very serious is under threat that we care about and rely on. And so we ought to do what we can to address it and take meaningful action. But if we aren't supported in processing it with a group of understanding others, for example, then it can lead to paralysis, immobilization, um, a sense of fatalism or doom, which becomes, you know, its own self-fulfilling prophecy if we start thinking that action is futile here. So um, there are lots of things that people can do to cope better with these emotions. For me, some of the the early things in, in the book that came up were certainly connecting with with others who can, in psychology speak, contain the emotions, like dwell with you in them, and uh, learn to understand what can be done to, you know, bring oneself back to the present moment. I I just want to just raise something that you address in the book, and and that is what you're talking about when you when you talk about your worries about bringing someone into the world, when you see the the impacts of climate change. That's Britt Ray in a certain position in society, and there are many like you, but there are people in marginalized communities where climate change is just one of the things that that threatens lives and has done so for quite a long time. You take that on. What is the responsibility of of people who live with privilege when it comes to the climate crisis? I think that privileged people ought to know that their feelings are valid right? The fear and the anxiety and grief, is, it's nothing to be ashamed of. However, becoming um, so inwardly focused is really going to hurt rather than help in this crisis if we don't 
use the emotions to glean a sense of implication in this crisis and be able to look outwards towards who's really most vulnerable here and what we can do to supportively partner with them and work for climate justice as an outcome of having this emotional distress because of course, you know, right now we're talking about hundreds of millions of people in India and Pakistan experiencing deadly heat. And it's really, really um, important that we can work towards prioritizing what must be prioritized at the same time as tending to the real emotional distress that even the most privileged among us are now feeling. And how do you do that in your own life? I do it by changing my work first and foremost. So when I first fell into this hole of eco-anxiety and grief, I was working in a totally different field. And throughout the process of writing the book, I quit the field that I was in. And then I started figuring out how to get involved in uh, the field of climate change and mental health. But in the projects, in the research and the interventions that my colleagues and I develop, we try as much as possible to focus on frontline communities who are experiencing the climate disasters upfront and personal already, and attaching my work to activism, to forms of collective change making with others, you know, whether that's pushing for policy changes, that sort of thing that really highlight the need for climate justice. You're listening to my conversation with Britt Ray, author of the new book, Generation Dread, Finding Purpose in an Age of Climate Crisis. I'm Laura Lynch, host of What on Earth here on CBC Radio 1 and Sirius XM. You just talked about activism, um, and you caution in the book about jumping straight from climate anxiety into climate activism. Uh, I spoke to a young woman last week, 20 years old, in university. Her name is Chloe C., who expressed uh, great relief even happiness at having gotten involved in activism quite recently. She said it relieved so much of her anxiety around climate change. And so I'm wondering, where is the danger in that? What Chloe's talking about is amazing and very much true. If you take up what we can think of as external actions, right, banding together with others to make change in your communities or at the political level can create a huge amount of psychological relief. So that's all valid. Importantly, also, activism can bring people together with others and forge meaningful community support, which is huge. So a lot of activists do do say that that's their, their savior in all of this. However, there can be this prescription, especially now that eco anxiety is becoming this household term. And there's a lot of people you know, writing articles about how to get over your eco-anxiety or beat back eco-anxiety or become triumphant over eco-anxiety. And that is what gets it wrong, right? We don't want to remove this. We need to learn to value it and fold it into our lives in a way that helps us develop emotional resilience. It's super important. We need much more external activism at all levels from all people. However, if our actions aren't paying off, right, if we continue to see leaders not heed our demands and emissions continue to rise and the world continue to burn, that's a very painful thing. And so we also need to pay attention to our emotions and our feelings and that whole internal realm, which is where we can really cultivate 
the resilience that will help us deal with the aftershocks of trauma and loss as we continue to bear witness to them in the climate crisis. Because this is not a one-time event, right? This is us understanding that we're dealing with this for the long term. It's kind of related to that. You also say it's important to act on climate change without the expectation or the hope that it will actually be effective. Why do you say that? Yeah, so this is something I learned from Buddhist leaders that hope and fear are are mutualistic. When you're hoping for something, you're fearing that something else might come instead. But it's that grasping that is the root of our suffering, right? If we can just be in the moment and be present with what is and let go of that yearning and grasping, things become not only much calmer, but truer to what's happening and and where you are. And you can kind of have some more creative shifts about how you're responding. And also what I was mentioning about how hard people have been working on this crisis for decades and still not seeing their results delivered. Unfortunately, that's a sad reality that we also are acknowledging as part of the work, right? In order to be able to to stick with it and not turn away out of self-preservation when the going gets tough, one way of doing that is understanding that we're taking action for the present moment rightness of it rather than an expectation or an attachment to outcome. Because if we continually attach to that outcome, we can be left burning out and snapping and having a really devastating time. Of course, we want that effect, right? That's what we're all doing it for. But on a deeper level, if we can kind of gear shift into present moment activity, that can be a much more nourishing place to act from. And I think for me, I've learned that that can really counteract some of the worst feelings of despair about the climate crisis. Part three of the book is about solutions. And one of them is communicating wisely about climate change. What exactly does that mean? So, of course, talking about the climate is super important. We often hear that the best thing you can do in order to support climate action is to talk about it. But it's really important that we talk about it in emotionally intelligent and wise ways that don't push the needle on polarization and division further. So hitting people over the head with facts does not work. And we know this from tons of science communication research as well, that you know the, the assumption is often that if people just knew the science, they would act on the evidence, but people don't do that. They can come to the exact same data set and believe very different things about it according to how they filter it through their identity, their values, and their beliefs. Um, And they will just kind of reconfirm their own bias by getting creative with how those facts support them. So facting people over the head doesn't work. Um, Facting? I've never heard of that used as a verb. Facting people over the head. I like that. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think it's a real word, but you know what I mean. I know what you Um, mean. (laughs) Yeah. And also moralizing, right? Coming out and grandstanding and pointing fingers and shaming people is a really horrible tactic for talking about the climate crisis because all that does is raise people's defenses. And we also want to get away from clinging to the hope only, like the positive solutions only approach because ignoring the difficult emotions that are arising for people makes them feel unseen in this. And all of this leads to basically listening a lot more than talking, right? We can get to a place of bridge building faster by having curiosity about each other's takes on the climate crisis and then working from there to connect over whatever values might be 
underneath and then working towards forging connections and solutions from there. You spoke earlier about the importance of having a supportive community around you as you went through your your own struggles. And you talk in the book about the need to work on building strong communities. I, I just wonder, though, is there a danger that that lets government and corporations like fossil fuel companies, for example, off the hook? I think we can approach it without it being an either or. We absolutely need to engage in climate litigation, which is a growing space, and keep corporations accountable for the intentional misinformation and disinformation, corporate malfeasance that the fossil fuel industry has been engaging in for decades. And as that occurs, we can also strengthen our own communities for bearing the brunt of climate traumas, right? So we're dealing with heat domes and wildfires and floods and all the rest of it. And we know from the field of psychiatric epidemiology and public health that communities that are the most connected and have the most social trust, social ties, tend to fare much better when experiencing disasters like that. And so they can rebuild faster and more efficiently after something has come through and you know destroyed property and or livelihoods and, and taken lives, for example. But also they can do work together to get ahead of the ball and actually mitigate harm before those disasters happen when when working together in this way that is intentionally trying to increase this what's called social capital and then being able to face the future with with more grit and resilience than before. I want to finish our conversation kind of where we started, and and just maybe a little bit of a spoiler alert for listeners. <laughs> After all of your deliberations uh, with yourself and your husband about having a child, what did you decide? We did welcome a baby boy into the world almost eight months ago now. Congratulations. <laughs> thank you. Yeah. So, you know, we thought very deeply and felt very deeply about this decision for four years, but ended up going for it. I mean, I very much understand why people are choosing differently and committing to not having kids because of the climate crisis, and I totally support them. For me personally, when I was really committing or coming close to committing to not having a child, that decision always felt rooted in fear, and I didn't want to let fear take over my life. And committing to that meant committing to the idea that the world isn't worth putting children into anymore. And um, instead, committing to having a child felt like committing to a radical form of hope and joy and all the things that were also feeling very true to me. And you chose an unusual name for him, Atlas. Why? (laughs) Yeah, I did. Um, Well, many reasons. But you know, the Greek uh, mythological figure Atlas is, of course, you know, depicted as kind of carrying the weight of the world on his shoulders. And I certainly didn't mean to reproduce that burden. Rather, uh, we were hoping that the namesake would give him the strength that's required for all kids now to be able to weather the challenges ahead, given the climate crisis. Britt Ray, thank you for your book. And thank you for this conversation. Thank you so much for wanting to talk about all this with me. 
You can read our Q&A with Britt Ray in our What on Earth newsletter from May the 5th of this year. And while you're at it, sign up for the newsletter because you'll get all the latest climate news from across CBC, including stories from our show, delivered right to your inbox every Thursday. Head to cbc.ca slash whatonearth to subscribe. Many Canadians are celebrating Thanksgiving this week. The centre of the feast tends to be, as Dr. Seuss put it, a roast beast. But that doesn't have to be the case. Rachel Sanders met up with some people in Vancouver taking a different approach at Thanksgiving. Let's take a listen back to that visit. Um, Oh, the chickadee. The chickadees are just feasting right now on the sunflowers. Danelda Rose walks around the rooftop garden in pink and blue floral crocs. She's my tour guide on this sunny afternoon. The vegetable beds are lush and she's proud of her harvest. And along here we've grown quite a few green peppers. Um, This is a red kale. What in these greenhouses went into the dishes that you made today? Some of the tomatoes, uh, green pepper, the purslane and the cucumber and the cucumelons. I think that's all. I was going to get celery and then I forgot. (laughs) Donelda's neighbours probably won't mind. They live together in this co-housing complex. 31 units full of people who share the space, the upkeep, and on occasion, meals. Today, the menu's all about plant-based eating. It's all to help Fabrice Rettier, and by the sounds of it, he could really use it. My nickname was Sergeant Sausage, because I would bring all these dried sausage. And, uh, and then I, we had a whole bunch of parties with uh, big meat, uh, feast, things like that. Fabrice is from France. Meat and cheese were a huge part of his diet growing up. He's got a real Vancouver vibe now. When I meet him, he's wearing shorts and flip-flops and standing in front of a barbecue. He says these days he's been thinking more about climate change. So now I'm trying to... Uh, make an effort to reduce uh, our impact so on, the, on food and on everything, not using our car as well, at least not in the city. So we've, I think, cut beef and lamb quite a bit. It's not easy for a meat lover to switch to an all-veggie diet. Fabrice says it's even harder with a special meal like Thanksgiving. Well, the centerpiece, you can cook many things that are really nice meatless, but it feels you miss this... Uh, this thing in the middle that you bring and that everything revolves around that piece. When I have big party, often I go and I get, I like the extravagant as well. So a huge ham or a, or a turkey with a duck and all that inside. Luckily, Fabrice has lots of help. His neighbors have made a few vegetarian dishes to inspire him. This is Roasted root vegetables. This is from our cooking vegan book. And then we've got pesto the besto. That's from basil grown up here on the roof. That's Vicento Molina. She's a dietitian, and she's actually written quite a few books, most of them about plant-based eating. At 78, she's been eating meatless for 40 years now. But it was a long journey. When I started, I would like to have Chateaubriand, and I had really good, you know, beef fondue and that kind of thing when I was a young mom. 
Then gradually I became vegetarian, went to India, learned how well they could cook there, lived there for four years, then became more and more plant-based. So I've been at every place on the spectrum. Fasanto's face lights up when she talks about food. She's excited to see more people interested in plant-based eating lately. It's mostly people that are just trying it out, you know, eating it on Thursdays trying to see what you can do when your father-in-law comes over and, you know, will he be willing to do this, you know. And, and I think we're, we're all just adventuring into this. Hey, Jones, what do you like to eat from Vicento's garden? Kale! Yeah. Sarah Jane Crossan and her family live here too. I was a vegetarian for a, a good long time in my life, and then as sort of more humanely raised meats became more available, and also when I got pregnant, <laughs> I, um, I reintroduced them, but I still try to maintain some of the great things about vegetarian eating. Yeah, so we do a mix. So lots of meals we don't have meat, some we do, um, and I feel good about that in terms of, you know, leaving the planet in good shape for my kids. Sarah Jane is cooking meatless this Thanksgiving, too, maybe a nut and mushroom loaf. She advises Fabrice on his approach. Replacing meat and using, like, fake meats is really uh, a great option, especially with kids, too. But also, like, remembering to think outside the box and just not trying to recreate the traditional meal, but kind of going with the fall theme just to really enjoy those flavors. And then, yeah, like, visually... Like the beet salad that was there at the table, like the visual impact of that just looks so nice with all the colors and stuff, so that always makes things feel more special to me too. Fabrice looks thoughtful as he samples his neighbor's dishes and his own barbecue experiments as well. The mushroom gravy, yeah, it's really good. This uh, Brussels sprout are a little bit spicy. Mm-hmm. So then the uh, cauliflower is made two different ways, two different sauces on the barbecue. So this one is quite good. He thinks he's found the main dish for his family's first meatless Thanksgiving. And he says he will cook a few of his neighbors' recipes as well. Actually, the cauliflower is good, both ways. So I think that's a good strategy, uh, cauliflower-based as a replacement direct for meat. It doesn't replace in terms of protein, but in terms of taste, I think it it will work. I think I found my centerpiece for um, Thanksgiving, so I'm happy uh, about that. How is it? Good. <laughs> Very good. Yummy. <laughs> In Vancouver, I'm Rachel Sanders. Okay, all of that is making me hungry all over again. Our Thanksgiving meals have certainly evolved over the years um, from being the traditional turkey around the table to the point where we now have pretty much half vegetarian and half turkey eaters, and we accommodate everybody at our table, and it's all quite delicious. So I wish for all of you marking Thanksgiving. I wish you a very good, warm family gathering and a terrific meal, whatever it is. That's all for this week. The show was put together by associate producers Danielle Piper and Serena Renner, producers Rachel Sanders and Molly Siegel, and me. Matthias Wolfson is our engineer. Catherine Rolfson is our senior producer. I'm Laura Lynch. Thank you for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.